funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. listeners uh who haven't seen it anyway elvis is going to be on hbo max on this uh september 2nd Ooh, okay so once uh once it hits i uh i think you should watch it and we don't have to do a whole episode on it but i would like to get your take on it just because uh i'm just curious if you're going to be the like the exact opposite of how i felt about it or maybe not like it as much i don't know i'm just very curious to see how you're going to feel about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to watch it. Like there's no, it's not even really up for <laughs> like up for debate. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm definitely going to watch it um, when it goes on HBO max. So yeah, I'll let you know. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it still. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I don't know. I was just, I'm glad they finally put a date on it. Cause I'll probably watch it again. Cause my wife wants to see it and uh, I wouldn't mind watching it again. So yeah. Anyway, thought I would let you guys know. So I'm uh, earlier, I'm just, you know, catching up, reading some articles and stuff that uh, I had missed. One in particular about Kurosawa from, we've talked about Slash Film a few times on this website or in this, uh, on this podcast. It's a website I still go to sometimes uh, against my will because they've changed so much, but they still occasionally will write some good random shit. And they put out one about Kurosawa and basically about him talking about how he never really wants his films to go exactly according to plan. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I I thought it really was interesting because for those of you that listen to our Hitchcock episode, or I mean really any, anytime we've talked about Hitchcock, we always have the conversation of like what type of artist Hitchcock was because if it, he, he storyboarded everything we even discussed how sometimes he wasn't even on set. So Kurosawa's beliefs are kind of the exact opposite of, of what Hitchcock believed in terms of art. And I'm not going to read the whole quote because it's a, it's a large quote, but basically he, the, the, he summarizes it with, that's what makes me happy about filmmaking, to get something different and better than what I conceived at the earlier stage. And I don't know. I just kind of wanted to bring that up and get your thoughts on it because that is the, you cannot be farther away from what a calculating director like Hitchcock, how he approached film. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I will say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say just for me personally, I think the type of movies that I like and just the type of filmmaker I respect once I, learn about their process um i will almost always prefer a director who has that attitude of kurosawa's as opposed to one of hitchcock's which is not to say that like you can't make a great movie if you meticulously plan everything out right like who knows maybe vertigo or rear window or north by northwest maybe those movies would not have been possible if the director had been more spontaneous, right? But my preference is always going to be for someone who is who views 
the actual filmmaking process, not the planning, but the actual filmmaking process as generative. I think the best directors do that. I think the probably the best example of that and the strongest example of that is Jean Renoir, um, simply because I think he's one of the best to do it, but I think he's also one of the earliest. Like he, you know, he, he would take his, like the, one of his best movies, A Day in the Country. I mean, you know, he'd be like, all right, it's 1932 and we're, or 1936 and we're taking uh, our camera out to the country and I've got an outline and I've got some dialogue and we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, like it, to me, it shows great respect and a great love for actors and for the settings for the world, right? Whether that be the real world, like, you know, Renoir out in the country or whether it's like a set that a set designer built. Like, I think it, it, there's more trust in your collaborators almost, you know, to me, like, uh, you know, Hitchcock has that famous thing where he just like actors are like mannequins, you know, or whatever. And, and Kubrick is another one of those meticulous planners, right? Fincher is another one. And to me, there's just like a, an anti, I don't want to say anti art, but it's like anti filmmaking. You know what I mean? Like if it, if, if it's all done in pre-production and you're trying to get the vision in your head, right? Like, I don't know. I, I will always be biased against those directors, Hitchcock, Kubrick included. And Fincher included, you know, as opposed to the ones who go on set and they're like, let's see what happens. You know, let's let's see what, what magic happens. And maybe nothing will happen and but maybe it will, you know. I don't know. What do you prefer? Do you do you have a do you have a well, preference or do you do you I don't know? I'm gonna first of all, I'm gonna need you to uh, avoid putting Kubrick in the same sentences as Hitchcock and Fincher. Uh because he was a genius. And Hitchcock uh, is not in the same league. And Fincher doesn't even live in the same house or the same planet. Now, so I'll, I'll agree, I'll agree to... with you on Fincher, but to say that Hitchcock is not in the same league as Kubrick, I agree with you, but I think in the opposite direction. That's that's quite the statement. Uh, I stand behind that statement, and I will die on that hill. Kubrick is a, uh, he is a better director. But that's here nor there. We're not here to argue about Kubrick and Hitchcock. Um, they, I agree with you. They're very similar though. directors, though. You have to admit. I mean, they're very, in their myth, in their mythology or uh, oh. methodology. Oh, absolutely. Which is why what I'm about to say is even kind of more contradictory to what I just said in terms of the thought process. Because I, I agree. I do. I do like more of a free flow director that let things organically grow and doesn't treat the actors like like they are puppets. Uh, right. Now, I will say. That's something that I've kind of went back and forth on over the years. Honestly, it's something I've went back and forth on just over the course of this podcast of when I think I think it's material based, like when material needs Mm. a stern leader and when material can kind of breathe more. And I think that uh, if you get like and I think history has shown this, if you get a meticulous director on a project that needs to breathe it's not always a good recipe right? and vice versa. Um, so I do think it's like, I couldn't imagine Kubrick doing a movie like seven samurai right. or a, a movie like throne of blood because it's too chaotic. And it's something that, that Kurosawa wanted to, to, to kind of have fun with, especially with seven samurai where he used a lot of angles and he wanted a lot of spontaneity. Right. And that's something he also references in his book. 
um, which is also a great read for anybody that wants to read it. So different. Yeah, I do agree with you. Time that kind of thing. Yeah, to just kind of have like a spontaneity on how the bandits will attack. What angle do I want to show you? Like, how are the samurai going to respond? How are the villagers going to respond? Uh, and I mean, the, the crazy thing is you have a guy who who liked to play a little bit of fast and loose with when you're actually on when you're actually on the shoot. But up to the process, he was a pretty meticulous guy. He liked to do a lot of paintings. He liked to paint out a lot of shit. Um, so it's really interesting when you when you kind of look, especially with something like uh, uh, Sanjuro and something Yojimbo. Uh, when you look at movies like that, it's like, man, so you can be that you can be that free throw free flow of an artist and let your let your people do what feels best, and you still capture some of the most iconic shots in the history of cinema. Right. Uh, right. I don't know, man. There's just something really special, but I am biased. I, I think Kurosawa is probably the greatest director of all time. So I definitely will admit up front that I'm biased on that front. No, and I think you bring up a good point, which is that it depends on the material, right? I mean, you know, Jean Renoir, as much as I uh, love him, I don't think he's capable, nor would he even want to make a movie like Rear Window, right? You know, and it takes a certain kind of meticulous planning to... Uh, to do something like that. Right. I mean, you could imagine, I mean, I think, I think rear window was like the, <laughs> the most expensive set ever built in Hollywood up to that point, you know, like it, it takes like kind of a meticulous, uh, uh, master to kind of really do that justice. You know, we've got two of the biggest movie stars in the world and we've got the most expensive, uh, movie set ever built. Uh, we're not going to come on and just improvise. Right. We, we need everything planned out to the nth degree you know, and, and even Kubrick, like, which, you know, I'm, I'm hard on Kubrick, but I love a lot of his movies and 2001 space odyssey is not the movie that you improvise on. You know what I mean? It's not the, you know, it's not the movie that you just bring a camera to set and just see what happens, you know? So I think you're right. I think the material really, it depends on the material and, and some of the great ones, you know, I think Scorsese is kind of of this too. And I think really, I think really every every great director has a little bit of this in them, which is like you know when to push on the gas and you know when not to, right? Like you plan you plan what you need to, you know, and then other things you you kind of take as they come, which I think was um, some of the best uh, Hollywood studio directors. Uh, Howard Hawks, I think, worked in that way. I think John Ford did too. You know, you have the plans, but you uh, you allow for a little bit of spontaneity. Um, because yeah, I can imagine Kurosawa just like, how do you rein in Mifune in Samurai, in Yojimbo, in Sanjuro? You know what I mean? Like, it, it, I, I can imagine Mifune just not being, uh, not being the type of actor that someone like Hitchcock or Kubrick would be comfortable working with. You know what I mean? Like, whereas Kurosawa is just like, yeah, I'm just gonna let this guy cook, you know, uh, and it, which is awesome. You know, it's, he's, you know, that, that relationship is very, uh, very, very fruitful for for the both of them. So, yeah, no, it's interesting to think. And it's funny when, it's funny when you, when you make the comparison with Scorsese, because Scorsese would have worked perfectly with Mifune. And I think just like he worked with De Niro and let De Niro do kind of, kind of breathe just like with Leonardo DiCaprio. I think that's why, like. I'm thankful as much as I love Kubrick and I do think he's one of the greatest filmmakers in the history 
of cinema. I, I do, I do like, I'm glad that Scorsese kind of looked towards people like Kurosawa opposed to Kubrick in terms of his style, because I think right. he's just, he's, he's better fit for that. Yeah. And you know, David Thompson has a really interesting phrase where he, I forget which Hitchcock movie he's talking about, but he says that um, the actors are coldly abandoned by their director. And I love that phrase because that phrase describes, I think, a lot of performances uh, in some of these real exacting directors' work. Like, like uh, for instance, uh, what's the, I get, Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon is coldly abandoned by his director but I think that performance works in that movie, you know, whereas I think uh, uh, Full Metal Jacket, it does not, you know, that technique does not. Eyes Wide Shut, it kind of works and it kind of doesn't, depending on how high your your irony tolerance is in that movie, you know. Um, Fincher, you know, I think I think Gary Oldman's a great actor and he probably could have, he probably could have, there, there might be a great Mank performance in the, on the cutting room floor of you know fincher's uh editing bay but i mean you talk about somebody being a fucking abandoned by their director i mean it was almost like he, he just didn't have any anything to say to, to to gary oldman and gary oldman was just like really i gotta do this alcoholic speech like 52 times you know like <laughs> you know like you can tell i feel like you could tell that uh gary oldman just wanted to get off set and like have a drink or something you know, um, but anyways, I just wanted to I wanted to shout out that David Thompson quote because I think that happens sometimes. I think sometimes the actors are coldly abandoned by their director, you know, and and sometimes actors thrive under that, and sometimes they don't. You know, clearly Jimmy Stewart and Hitchcock had a great relationship. Cary Grant and Hitchcock had a great relationship, but one of the reasons why is because those motherfuckers were so good they didn't need any direction, right? They had a director's. I mean, thing yeah, there. it's it's. It's very much like a like you know I'll throw I'll throw Clint Eastwood into this since he's known as a first take guy. Yes, uh, yeah, great I think, example. I think he's another one. I think he's another one who kind of you're gonna get it right or it's gonna look like shit, but we're going either way. Right, right. And you have someone like Bradley Cooper, an American sniper, who is really researching that part and is a really really dedicated actor in that role. And then you have something like the kid in Cry Macho, who's like he's abandoned by his director in that movie, you know? And I think it, it eventually doesn't matter, but, uh, but yeah, no, Eastwood is a really, really good example. Cause it, it, you know, in, in that example, like Eastwood, uh, what's the guy's name? Paul Walter Hauser, who plays Richard Jewell. Like, Oh yeah. That motherfucker. He, he similar to the Jimmy Stewart, the Cary Grant and the Bradley Cooper in American Sniper. Like he didn't need any direction from Clint in that movie. And like, because he's brilliant, you know. Um, but yeah, dude. Still, th- th- before we move on, I will say I've already talked about this in the podcast, but it, dude, it'll never not make me laugh when I think about Matt Damon asking for a second take and Eastwood just being like, "Why do you want to waste everybody's time?" That's just <laughs> that's just one of the greatest things ever. I'm sorry. Uh, it's just it's one of those Hollywood stories that will always make me laugh. I love it, man. Wait, what movie was that? Um, what movie? It was uh, the soccer movie, Invictus. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. What a great, what a great story. 
Yeah, dude, it's just so fucking funny. Yeah, do you want to do another take? I felt like my accent was uh, cartoonish, and Clint's like, nah, we're good. <laughs> I just I just love it because, like, Eastwood, like, people, like, will, will reference, like, Dirty Harry, but it's like, no, that's just the way Clint Eastwood talks. Right. So, like, him just being like, why do you want to waste everybody's time? <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it's fucking perfect. Why do you want to waste everybody's time, you son of a bitch? Get back in your Get trailer. the fuck off my set, right. <laughs> you piece of shit. <laughs> uh, that's great. So, uh, dude, I just want to say one more thing. Uh, I, I watched a movie that look. It's gonna be it's gonna be weird talking about this or referencing this, but I have to do it because this is how good it was. For those of you that don't know, a while back, Disney Plus put out a movie of Chip and Dale. And it's a live action, like CGI hybrid, but it's, I, I can't really explain it. It's worth watching. This movie is fantastic. And I am not joking. Like, okay. I'm, it, it, I'm a, to me. What's the, like, is it just really funny or is it just like, what's the. Yeah. Well, at times it gets, tre- it gets treated like a noir. Oh, like, I see. Because, because they're trying to, they're trying to solve a, like, uh, Roger Rabbit is going to be the movie that was most compared to this. Mm. Now, I don't remember hearing a lot about this when it came out because it's been out since May. Um, but, dude, it's got a stacked cast. The way they handle the animation is great because you have some characters who are still traditional animation and they're talking to the other guys and like, oh, you got a CGI upgrade, did you? And like, everyone looks different. There's all these different textures on camera. You've got a great voice cast with Mulaney and Sandberg. I'm and, and that's just those two guys. But I mean, when it comes to people like Seth Rogen, Kiki Lane, J.K. Simmons, Keegan Michael Key, like there is a lot of voice work, talented voice work in this movie. Um, but dude, it's just cool. Like they, there was many ways this movie could have gone wrong, but Disney avoided it. I don't know how they did, but they did. And honestly, it's worth watching. And I know it sounds weird to say that about a Chippendale movie, but uh, it, yeah, I, I thought it was really good. Surprisingly good. No, I I like this pull, man. I like I would much rather watch the new Chippendale movie than just like some like random Netflix movie. You know what I mean? Like that. Uh, it looks cool. I mean, it reminds me of uh, of uh, what was it, Detective Pokemon or something? What was it? Detective Pikachu. Oh yeah, the, the with uh, Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, yeah Detective yeah. Pikachu, which um, I love. I fucking loved that movie, man. Like the character design. Yeah, dude, that movie was funny. It really was. The character design is so incredible. They really, they really brought those little Pokemon motherfuckers to life, man. Like, and it, like you said, it was really funny, and like, I don't know, the heart, the heartwarming elements didn't really hit home for me because it was like. So the so the Pokemon is his dad? Like what? <laughs> like what the Yeah. What the fuck? It's like a, so so what so he's been hanging out with his dad the whole time, but didn't realize his dad has the voice of Ryan Reynolds, who is his dad. <laughs> right. Pikachu had the voice. Right. I don't understand. Yeah, um, that was a little weird. But but, but no, I know you're like, yeah, it, it 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 looks cool, man. It looks like that movie, honestly. So uh yeah, hell yeah, man, I'll watch it. And it's a little more adult. Like it is closer to being Roger Rabbit PG thirteen territory. Then I mean, it's still good for kids, but they do some funny stuff. 
like when 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 people start disappearing because that's the crime they're trying to solve and like mm. there's there's some really funny jokes like they bring ugly sonic back and it's really fucking funny um because he has teeth you know when they had that whole sonic debacle right uh when they when they put it out so like yeah dude i mean this i'm I, i'm like everything the lonely island crew people do i'm a fan of like going all the way back to the ridiculously underrated like pop star never stop never stopping which is one of the best comedies to come out in the last 20 years um, dude i mean so. to, it, to me it's the only comedy that has come out in the past 10 years that has like been actually good you know like i feel like we're in such a comedy dearth you know um i agree it's just really really generic comedy really generic comedy or like really indie comedy Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, no, Popstar is great. Um, it's funny you say that. I wasn't going to mention this simply because I completely forgot about it, but uh, I watched uh, Palm Springs. Have you seen that? Oh, great movie. Dude. Like, so much better than it should have been. Dude, I absolutely loved it. Every creative choice they made in that movie, like, paid off. Like, it was, yeah, I just, I don't even really have a lot to say about it. I just loved it. It was like, such a good like romantic comedy and like it does the groundhog day thing without being annoying and like ah it was really great man i really loved it and christine miliotti is like really good in it you know like as a modern it's hard to do like a modern rom-com you know because like you know i don't know what wave of feminism we're in but like the heroines of like rom-coms of like you've got mail and stuff like seem like hopelessly outdated now you know and it's like everybody wants to be a girl boss or whatever and like i don't know it was she her character is really good and i really liked it man i thought it was fantastic dude great chemistry great humor it caught my attention because it's on hulu if you guys want to watch it it caught my attention because it sparked a bidding war uh when it came out of the festival and uh hulu ended up with it but uh Dude, I watched it with pretty low expectations, regardless of how many good things I was reading about it, and uh, absolutely loved it. It was really, really entertaining. Really, it's a, it's a really, um, it had more heart than your typical generic rom com or comedy, for that matter. Yeah. So, shout out J.K. Simmons, who's amazing in like three scenes. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, dude, that dude, that dude can do. Like even his voice work, which he's not in, I don't think he's in um, Chippendale very much, but dude, even his voice, like he's just, you put him in any movie and, and you're going to remember. One of our great character actors, man. I, I always say that we don't have a lot of great character actors anymore, but boy, he's one of them. Um, yeah, dude. I mean, I think, I think if I had to make a list uh, of my favorite performances in the last 20 years, actually I'll say favorite performances ever. Uh, his performance in Whiplash would probably be in my top ten. Like I, I think it's just it's a masterful. Performance. I will gut you like a pig. Yeah, dude. Like every every chance I get, I will use not quite my tempo. And usually, people either don't get it or they're mad because I'm doing it again. Um, yeah, that's me. I'm the I'm the second one, bud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter, dude. I don't care. Like I'm. I'm sorry. He, he seeing him on screen do something that I love to do. I don't do it much anymore since I don't work in an office. 
but you ask people about their life like you care only to use it as ammunition later. It's genius. <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> only to use it as ammunition to ruin their life. Uh, dude, it's or even even just ruin that moment or that day. Like I don't need to go for big takedowns. I'm good with small. Right. So yeah, win the battle, not the war. It's true. Uh, anyway, guys, let's get to the main event. Unless you have something to add. No, no, no. Let's get to it. The Asphalt Jungle from the one and only John Houston. And I'll tell you, folks, this movie sucks. Um, <laughs> it might be one of the worst noirs ever made. Um, clearly, that was an ill-advised joke I made. This movie's fantastic. Uh, it's, I was, yeah, you, it's you, carried it on, you carried it on one sentence too long. I was like, wait, is he being serious? Yeah, it was just a bad idea from the jump. Because uh, right. I already talked about how much I loved it on the last episode. Uh, so, but, uh, anyway, it is one of the most influential, uh, films from the fifties. Uh, it's, it's one of the most influential noirs of all time, which is really interesting that that's the case. We'll get into that though. But, uh, what's your history with this movie? What's your relationship with it? Um, you know, I, um, went through a phase of my life where I was watching just every noir I possibly could. Um, and uh which i guess i'm probably still in that phase a little bit but um i would just watch every every noir that was streaming you know and um i uh i watched it and loved it and kind of just filed it away into the that's actually a problem that i have when i kind of look back at noirs is that they all kind of run together um which makes sense on a certain level because they do often have very similar plot elements and very similar visual styles and stuff like that. But um, I was really confused about this movie. I thought this was the killing. Like, I mean, I know the killing cause I've seen it a few times, but like I was thinking that the end of the killing almost happens exactly again in this movie the same way. And of course it doesn't. So like it was one of those movies that I'd seen and I'd loved, but I almost had no memory of. And so I'm I'm glad I rewatched it because like uh, now that I'm rewatching a bunch of these noirs, I'm starting to be able to tell the difference between them. You know, like maybe like ten years ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between say like Maltese Falcon and Big Sleep, whereas now I am. And like I don't know, a week ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between The Killing and Asphalt Jungle. But now I'm like, oh yeah, no, I know Asphalt Jungle now. So I'm glad you picked it because it's. Um, there are some noirs out there that are that are not that good in in the sense that they're not that rewatchable. It's just like a quick and dirty like seventy two minute movie. Like I wake up screaming or something, and it like it gives you a little hit of that noir energy, and then you just move on with your life. But Asphalt Jungle is one that really replay or repays um, uh, careful viewing and and multiple viewings. You know, and so I'm glad you picked it because it it. It's it stands out from the pack, um, you know, um, in, in the noir universe. Um, I don't know. Why did you pick this movie? Well, well, you know, before we get before I say that, I, I want to say like I think people something we've discussed on this podcast a lot is people thinking, and myself used to be guilty of this, so I'm not judging. People thinking that uh, every foreign movie is an art house movie, right? Right. And that's not the case because other countries have their own genre movies just like we do. Right. But to us, it's not our culture. It's not our language. So it's going to strike us. Oh, it's black and white with subtitles. Oh, it's, it's fucking art house. Sure. Um, 
So when you look at noirs, I think people forget that in the in the 30s, 40s, 50s, they had genres and genre movies the same way we have like the action movie now, the same way John Wick started this uh this this like really focused fight choreography hand to hand action movie generation that we've seen for the last 10 years that existed back then too and the noir felt falls under that umbrella because yeah, yeah. there are a lot of bad noirs yeah like people can lie to themselves if they want that every noir is good but i'm sorry that's not the case like well, some of them are just bad well i think you might be uh you might confuse yourself into thinking that all noirs are good because you googled best noirs and you watched all the top 20 or whatever you know like you know, but yeah, like, and I will actually throw out a resource for this. They shoot pictures, um, has a supplement to their like main, you know, rankings or whatever. Uh, and it's the, they shoot picture. I think it's called, they shoot dark pictures or something. And it's a thousand noir films. And he actually has not finished the list. It's at 885 right now. And it's been, it's been there for a couple years. So I actually don't know if he's going to finish it, but, um, it's it's the thousand uh, most cited noir movies, right? And this includes like actual noirs from the 30s through the 50s, um, precursors to noir, and then of course neo noirs and movies that have noir elements. And you know, Blade Runner's on this list, right? And like a thousand, you think about it, you think, wow, that's a lot of movies. But like 500 of them are just like. B pictures from the forties that like most of them are not even available anymore, you know? And like I said, they're like 70 minute long uh, movies that are on super low budgets with no one that you've ever heard of in your life, you know? And like most noir, you're right. Like most noirs are that most noirs are like really, really shitty B pictures. And there are a lot of gems in there. Like, don't get me wrong. And most of them are watchable, but like, yeah, like it's you, you would you could be forgiven for thinking that like, you know, wow, all these film noirs were great, and it's like, no, they were just like it was a genre just like anything else. There were there were hundreds of these that were being produced every year, and the ones that we know from history are just the ones that have stood out. You know, the Asphalt Jungle, The Killing, Double Indemnity, Laura. You know, on and on and on and on. And it's funny because uh, to bring up Slash Film again, this is applicable. They actually released a list of uh, of top 20 greatest noirs or whatever. And their number one was a noir we've discussed on here before that I find to be incredibly overrated. And it does not deserve to be number one. And that is Double Indemnity. Really? Um, yeah. I, we talked about that with Audrey. And... Uh, uh, on on our last episode with her, I, I'll pull up the episode count for episode number for whoever wants to check it out. But uh, I don't remember yeah, you talking my about it being overrated. Yeah, I I, I remember. I, I don't know if I used the word overrated. I do think it's overrated. I I obviously like it, and I I just remember saying like it's not my favorite. Like it's just not in terms of pacing right. and stuff. It's not my favorite. Right. Um. So I'm not like I'm not insulting the movie because I understand it is a hardcore classic. But uh, I'm sorry, like. In a Lonely Place is was number two, and I watched that movie, and I've watched it twice since uh, for the top your top five favorite episodes, our top five favorite movies of all time. And In a Lonely Place, in my opinion, it, there's not even a competition for it being the 
the the best uh, noir out there. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, because I just love in a lonely place so much, but it's also like the world of noir is like. It, it, when you're navigating it, like there's some things you should know. One of them is what we just talked about. There being like hundreds of them, you know, but another one is you've, uh, you've got to get the years right too, because like 1944 double indemnity is often seen as like the, the epitome of film noir. And in some ways it is, but it's also pretty early in the world of noir, right? It's only three years after Maltese Falcon and people call the Maltese Falcon a film noir, and it barely is, right? Like it's 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 just a detective movie, and like it's got Humphrey Bogart and it's in black and white. Like film noir didn't exist in 1941, and so by the time you get to Double Indemnity, it's like, in some ways, it is a very iconic noir, but in in some ways, a lot of that style is just pure Billy Wilder adapting the detective fiction of his time right noir movies don't really get hard-coded and like uh able to like imitate on like a mass scale you know with like thousands or hundreds of b movies until the late 40s right until 47 48 46 was when the term was invented was when a french uh critic invented the term film noir um so yeah, you kind of get, and like, that's why I think it's so like, by the time you get to In a Lonely Place, you're not post-noir, like it's not far enough to be called a neo-noir, but it's like, there had been, you know, damn near 10 years of film noir by the time In a Lonely Place came out. So In a Lonely Place doesn't have a lot of the elements that traditional noir does, right? Like it's, you know, it's, 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 it's more of like a chamber drama or like a, you know, but yeah, I don't know. Is, is what I'm saying making sense? Like, there's like, uh, like you kind of have to figure out where you're at in the timeline because anything in the '50s is almost post Golden Age noir, if that makes sense. It's almost a comment on the noir, right? Whereas, and then by the time you get to the '60s and and '70s, of course, you're you're way off the map. You know, you're you're firmly into neo noir territory, but it's. Uh, like I feel like a seasoned viewer, I want to say I could probably do this, but I maybe I couldn't. I think a seasoned noir viewer would be able to watch a noir and be like, "Oh, this came out in the '40s, or this came out in the '50s," right? And that leads into our movie today, which came out in 1950, and it, it marks a a transition from kind of like quick and dirty double indemnity style noirs to a more elaborate like crime focused noir like heist movies you know the killing came out in 55 and was heavily influenced by asphalt jungle so like i think i think it's an it's asphalt jungle is a really interesting movie because it marks a a large turning point in the world of noir but it's not as large of a turning point as something like chinatown it's just kind of a minor turning point and noir started to be a little bit different they started to be uh more afraid of the atom bomb you know you got robert aldrich's uh kiss me deadly you know is another 50s noir classic they weren't making that type of shit in the 40s in the 40s they were making stuff like out of the past and you know double indemnity and mildred pierce and uh detour you know the movies were much more ramshackle and much less prestigious and much lower budget than they were in the and also less paranoid right like 
less kind of 50s Cold War paranoia. You know, it's much closer to like 1939 Hollywood than it is to like post-war Hollywood. Um, but anyways, that's just, I feel like well, maybe, maybe that'll be helpful to somebody. It's just like a, a map of noir. So you can kind of get your bearings when you're looking at these old movies, you know? Well, I mean, you touched on something that not only do we not have the time, I think it would take a whole episode, possibly a few, um, but also I don't feel like I am knowledgeable enough to do it. But the discussion of what even makes a noir, like what right. what is an actual noir? Because as you said, if it was in the 40s and 50s, uh, black and white with Humphrey Bogart, oh, 100%, that's a noir. Like, no doubt about it. Right. And that's not always the case. I think just to kind of put these movies in a box. But like I said, I think that requires a much longer conversation. But also, I don't even know if I can have, I don't know if I'm uh, well-versed enough in noir to talk about that. But I do think it's an right. interesting thing to bring up. Yeah, be- um, because the definition is elastic, right? I mean, me personally, I like to use a big net when talking about it. Like, I think I, I would refer to Collateral as a noir movie, you know? Like, like I, I, have, I, don't, I have no problem. But you're right. There is like distilled noir, which means black and white takes place in a city, has a detective, you know, and has like these very specific elements. You know what I'm saying? That like th- there's a big. Yeah, there's there's a way they talk. There's a way yeah. they enter rooms. There's a way they converse with women. There's a way women are in those as well. Like it's completely right. there. Like there. I feel like there is a blueprint in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a big spectrum. You've got the real you got the real distilled shit you know the real strong whiskey that's you know maybe probably laura or or out of the past maybe you know god i remember there's a great line from out of the have you seen out of the past you know that movie yeah it's been a long time though god we should do that we should talk about that movie at some point mitchum just like takes a fucking drag of a cigarette and he goes hang my gallows high baby like dude it's so fucking good but like i don't i don't know who would i don't know where you would draw that line but there is like a a singular black spot that is the very center of film noir and then off of that black spot a million different variations have exploded you know like in both ways past and forward you can look back at casablanca the photography in casablanca and you can see wow, that, that really is kind of a noir precursor almost in a way, even though it really isn't a film noir, you know. Uh, it's Kane the same way, you know. Um, a lot of people consider the Anthony Mann, Jimmy Stewart westerns of the 50s to be noirs, even though they're literally black and white westerns, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit... I mean, for that matter, for that matter, can a western, can a western even technically be a noir? I mean... Yeah, it's if, if you're getting down, if you're getting lost in the weeds on it, I mean, it's a big, you know, I think it's a big boat personally. I think it's a big boat, you know, it, you know, for there's a lot of different things that fit under that definition, but but you're right. There is there is a there is a single core of like you know, these are the elements. The this is really what we think of. And everything else is kind of a spin-off of that almost. Um and I mean, the the listener might be wondering why we're having such an in-depth conversation about noirs instead of jumping right to the asphalt jungle. But I do think it's important to note that if you do any reading or any research about the asphalt jungle, you are going to find out that, yes, it is one of the most influential movies of the 50s. And yes, it is, oddly enough, one of the most influential noirs ever made. But in a traditional sense, this is not your normal noir movie. Yep. Like, 
John Houston does a lot of things to focus more on the aftermath and the human element opposed to, oh, this is about the criminals and the heist. The heist in this hour and 50 minute movie, the heist lasts for about four minutes. Right. I mean, this this movie is about the journey of the characters uh, and, and, you know, including a guy who who's not really cut out to be a criminal. Then you have Sterling Hayding, uh, Hayden. Then you have like the Weasley guy. You also have the women that are caught in the middle. There is a lot that they put into this movie that makes it, I think, a bit more human than than your typical uh, noir would be. And, and I thought it was really interesting that I read on Wikipedia, actually, that when they were shooting the film, Houston was influenced by uh, European neorealist like Open mm. City. And I haven't seen Open City. Actually, no, we have, we watched Open City for the podcast. Yeah, uh, But most City, importantly, yeah. uh, Bicycle Thieves. And I thought that was really interesting when you look at how Houston wanted to shoot this movie and how he wanted to portray his characters, that that was his influence. And I think that in and of itself really stands a little outside of, of what a traditional noir would be. No. Yeah. I mean, I think you, no, you're, you're right. It's such a fascinating conversation because uh, uh, thinking about what is a noir, what isn't a noir or, you know, what are the core elements or whatever? Because when you think about it, if, if anybody had said the asphalt jungle, if you know movies, you know, Oh, it's classic film noir. Right. Um, everybody would describe it that this as a noir. But when you think about it, there's no detective that we follow around. There's cops, but there's no, you know, like there, there's no detective that is a main character. Um, it takes place in a city, but we barely see the city, right? I mean, when you think about noir, you think about the foggy, you know, and the steam coming out of the vents and you know, that type of shit. And we really don't have a lot of that at all in this movie. There's a couple at the beginning and, and kind of towards the end after the, the heist, but, but not really. And like heists, high, you know, a heist was not traditionally part of like 40s noir. Now, starting here and moving forward, it would become a recurring plot element. But before this, the heist wasn't really um, an element of the noir and a femme fatale. This movie doesn't really have a femme fatale you know, and that obviously was an important part of noir. So yeah, this is, this is a turning point. You bring up a really great point. This is, there are elements here that don't necessarily uh, fit into the traditional idea of the genre, but what's interesting about that, it would single-handedly bring those elements into the noir. You know what I mean? Like it would, it would bring those elements in. And so now in five years, you've got The Killing, which is an undisputed film, great film noir masterpiece. And, you know, it owes probably, you know, four or five of its main core things, including Sterling Hayden. It owes it to this movie. So, um, no, it's a great point. It's a great point because this is not a traditional noir by any means. Yeah, and, and, I, and I just feel like there were so many interesting things that Houston did that just makes this movie feel so layered and feel like you're like just the opening alone. I love it. The cops are driving around, you know, Sterling Hayden is hiding behind like pillars to keep from getting spotted. And he gets to the bar, no word spoken. The bartender takes his gun referred to as a heater, which is great. Yeah. Puts it in 
puts it in the cash register, and the cops come in. He's like, how long has he been here? He's like, I just own the place. I don't watch the clock. <laughs> and like, he's like, we're going to search. It. He's like, you need a warrant. And then they're like, oh, like, you know, just take him. And they just, are, like, all this shit, like, that you understand the relationship between Sterling Hayden and the bartender without words being spoken. Like, yeah. it was just such a great introduction. And I have to tell you this. I, I spotted this because uh, I can remember faces. Do you know who was in the lineup with Sterling Hayden? He he had. I think this is his second role ever, and it was uncredited. Oh my god! I cannot wait to hear the answer to this. I have no clue. One of my favorite performances ever in a movie was by him in the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and that is Struther Martin. He was in the lineup next to Sterling Hayden. It was his, like I said, his second role ever. So the guy, I had to double the guy take. Who, the guy who does the neck thing and tries to hang himself. Yeah, I had like he was in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had to double take to make sure that was him, and then I verified it on IMDb. I was like, "Oh, that is fucking awesome!" Because <laughs> then you know, a while like you know, twenty years later, fifteen years later, he turns in a great performance as as like the yes man to Liberty Valance, and it's one of the most memorable performances uh, from a character actor in any Western. Talk about eagle-eyed. I, I would have never picked that up in, I could have watched that movie a hundred times and I would have never picked that up. Just that goofy looking look, like that fucking face he has, man. Yeah. When the camera's like going by each person as they're telling him, hey, put your hat on. Hey, do this. Right. Uh, I just I just caught it, but I was like, that is just awesome. Like, That's this incredible. dude's second fucking role. That's incredible. Yeah, there's. Um, I want to. I want to kind of draw a broad outline around this, unless, unless you have another plan of attack here. Um, oh no, no, let's let's do it that way. Like I just, I just want to think of this as like you know, this is really three parts of a movie, right? And I, like that opening scene that you're that you're talking about, I think is the really one of the only scenes in the movie that really looks like a noir. Everything else takes place in rooms, you know. Yeah, rooms, um, hallways. Yeah, right, right. Rooms, hall, always cramped too. Everything is always cramped and messy. And um, but uh, but there's three. Th- there's a very simple structure to this, which is there is a gathering the team together, right, and planning everything. There's the execution of the heist, which, like you said, takes only about four minutes of screen time. And then there's the aftermath, right. And this is. A this is something that, and I keep going back to the killing, but and maybe it's the Sterling Hayden connection, but um, this is something that the killing does. This is something Reservoir Dogs does. I mean, Tarantino is essentially, uh, you know, is essentially like robbing this uh, uh, this setup like straight from these types of noirs, and this is the type of of noir that would become very very popular throughout the fifties, right? Um, and that type of structure, which is we get to see the heist or the robbery or the, the X, whatever it is. And, um, then we would get the aftermath, right? You can also see the structure in High Sierra, that, which is a great Raul Walsh movie with Humphrey Bogart that I've talked about, uh, ad nauseum because it's one of my favorite movies. Um, and when you watch High Sierra, you can see that was a rare movie for its time. Not a lot of movies had that structure. But once the asphalt jungle has a structure, every movie has the structure, right? Like it, it's really, really influential in that regard. 
Um, but I want to talk to something you mentioned about the rooms and in between there, all of the movie, it's not an action movie, right? Like early on watching it, I was getting a little antsy and I was like, I was like, God damn, I wish Raul Walsh had directed this. That was one of my first thoughts. Cause I was like, man, there would have been like some crazy action scenes if he had done it, you know? And like, and then like, I kind of refocused and I was like, I, I realized like, Oh, it's not that kind of movie. Like it's not, you know, it's not that kind of movie. It's, it's more about these characters and how doomed they are and how doomed their efforts are. And um, yeah, it's almost like a, like a tragic, like a, like a play, like a tragedy or something almost. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, I think a point in case of, of what kind of movie Houston wants to make is, has how all the stories get wrapped up. Right. I mean, right. spoiler alert for a movie that's obviously very old. Uh, you know, Sterling Hayden dies in a field surrounded by horses. Right. You know, the doctor or the, the, the mastermind, I should say, it gets arrested on the street after sitting in a bar in a very like unceremonious way. Uh, there's just not, the, the, I guess you could say the most exciting thing that happens in terms of the tragedy is, is the old guy who kills himself, which even then uh, they didn't show anything. It's everything. Obviously they didn't show it. It's just implied, but that was a scene that they expected a fight to keep in the movie and they didn't have to fight at all, which they were all surprised by because suicide, even off screen in 1950 was a big deal. Sure. Sure. Um, but I mean, yeah, you can tell by all the, like if Walsh had done this as much as I love Walsh, there probably would have been at the very least a car chase yep. with Sterling Hayden in it. There would have been more of like a, like maybe the, 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 the guy would have taken hostages in the bar. Maybe the girl he just bought a dance or he just bought a song for he would have taken her as a hostage. Yeah. It would have been a big thing with the cops. Like there would have been more, but Houston yep. really wanted to humanize the stories. I feel he really wanted to humanize the characters. God, that's a great point. Yeah. I, Houston is much more interested in the characters than he is in the thrills, spills and chills, you know, like he's, he's really focused on the characters and like, I can, I can see someone watching this and being like, you know, this is not really my type of noir. You know what I mean? Because like I, I can, I, I would get that opinion. Like if, if someone said that, because it's like, yeah, it's, this is, this is more character based, you know, he picks these great actors. It, it cannot be emphasized enough how impeccable the acting is in this movie. And he picks these actors and he gives them these amazing, well-drawn characters and he just lets them cook. Right. Like, Apparently, from what I understand, you may know more about this than I do because it sounds like you did some research, but apparently this is a pretty by-the-book um, adaptation of the book, The Asphalt Jungle. And, like, he didn't change hardly anything. I mean, obviously, you know, he lost a lot of exposition and stuff, but apparently he didn't change a lot. And so, like, he just read this book and was like, these characters are incredible. I'm going to cast these amazing actors, and I'm just going to let them go, you know? And it's it, it's it feels like it's not much to do as a director you know like like well what did you actually do on this movie john houston and it's like well that's enough man you know like he, he had the good sense that he saw the source material and was like all right i'm just gonna cast these guys and let them go you know and and it makes for a really incredible movie you know absolutely and and like you know if, if this movie gets adapted by somebody else not just Walsh, but there's a lot of directors you could pull out for that time. 
they would have fluffed it up. They would have been like, hey, we need more excitement. Right. Like, we need something more to pull the audience in, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, you cannot say enough how much better the movie works by just focusing on the human element. I think that's really what sets it aside. Yeah. Um, from from other more traditional noirs because it really is just kind of watching these guys spiral because there's really only one way they're all going to end up dead or in jail. And while that might be a foregone conclusion, it's still something different to watch it unravel in an hour and 50 minutes. Right. And something all the characters have in common is they all, there's an atmosphere, which is they all seem to know it. Right. Like the, like, Nobody is, you know, everybody is resigned to their fate, right? There's no like rage against the dying of the light. Like this is all the, the atmosphere and kind of the attitude of the story is just very like, like, yeah, we know this isn't going to end well, you know? Um, let, I, I want to talk, I want to shift a little bit, talk about some of these characters, because I think these are the main attraction in the movie um do you have a do you have a favorite one or one that you think would be most interesting to talk about because frankly i could talk about all of them i think i think every character even down to you know as we'll get to the the bit supporting parts are just really really good yeah i mean i, I you know one of my favorites i mean and and this is an, another like i i kind of caught it he looked familiar so i looked him up james whitmore who played gus that is the same guy who plays Brooks in Shawshank Redemption. So he will forever have my undying uh, just love for his acting, his work. And he plays Gus in the movie. And I really liked, I liked him. It kind of, he got screwed. His character got screwed. But honestly, like, as we already discussed, everybody that touched this, everybody involved was either going to die or go to prison. So yeah, he got screwed, but he was going to go. It just, it was a matter of when and how. Yeah, um, and just just to expound upon that a little bit for anybody who hasn't seen it or maybe haven't seen it in a while, Gus is Gus is the uh, the diner uh, guy at the beginning. He's they call him a cripple, uh, but like I like whenever they refer to him as that, I was like, wait, what? Like he just he looks like he has kind of like a I don't know, like a, a God, what's that guy's name? Catherine Hepburn and uh, the actor. Um, guess who's coming to dinner? Um, uh spencer tracy that like oh. he has just like a he has just like a spencer tracy kind of look to him but they refer to him as like a cripple and a hunchback and um yeah i don't know but he, he's running the diner and he's just kind of this loyal bag man you know and and uh hides sterling hayden's gun at the beginning and he has a couple of moments of and like you said if this had been raul walsh these would have been action scenes but they weren't they were character-based scenes he has a couple of great scenes where he just loses his fucking shit one of them is the trucker who says he likes to kill cats for fun and he just oh yeah that was great he's like if you were a foot taller yeah (laughs) what (laughs) and he just fucking snaps on the guy and he's like if i ever catch you killing cats again i'm gonna fucking kill you like (laughs) like he just loses his mind and then the other great scene is whenever he's walking down the jail one of those great uh cramped corridors that you mentioned he's walking down the hallway of the jail and he just like i don't know how he did it man he just like 
goes through the bars and grabs that guy's face and is just like, I'll fucking kill you. I mean, just like punching him and stuff. It's <laughs> it's amazing, man. He goes from zero to 90. Like, it's nothing. And he's like the most loyal guy in the movie. And like, he doesn't even see, it's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, this poor guy. It's like, nah, I got caught. I'm going to get, I'm going to get the electric chair. Fuck you. You know, like he's, it's not <laughs> sad. Like he's just like a, you know, he's just like a killer. He just doesn't care. It's it's a really great character. Yeah, and, and honestly, man, all the characters in this movie are are great, and, and you could really follow any of them and not go wrong. I mean, um, you know, we have to talk about Marilyn Monroe. Like, you know, when this movie got marketed the second time around, even for that small role, like it was, if you do any research on this movie, you'll find out. They put her front and center. She's yeah. dominating the poster. Her name's all over. And it's like, yeah, she's in the movie for like five minutes. Um, <laughs> but she's good in it. I mean, she is good in the role. Like, it's a very it's a, it's a very uh, uh, pivotal role uh, to, to a certain character. But, uh, but, I mean, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Just having her, like, dominate the poster the way they did second time around. Yeah, I think it's... Um... I don't know. I, I think we should go a little bit. I know we're getting close to time. I think we should go a little bit over time if we have to, because I really want to talk about all these different actors because they really, man, they really, this is just such an acting showcase. And apparently they were all New York actors, you know, and we've talked about that scene in uh, that Ilya Kazan uh, was, was very influential in the Brando, James Dean, and they were all working on television and theater. And this was an early version of that. These were all New York guys. Um, who got cast, you know, and they, they weren't working in Hollywood. They were working in theater, you know, and um, so that that is something that Houston definitely deserves credit for is, you know, not not just going to the Hollywood, um, you know, the Hollywood well, you know, he, how he went out there. But but no, Marilyn Monroe, I mean, you know, we've talked about Marilyn. I know you're not um, a devotee like I am, but she's it's interesting to compare this with All About Eve which came out, I think, in the same year. Um, and Mankiewicz and George Sanders in that, in that movie, they just kind of dismiss her. You know, she's just like eye candy. And uh, she just like walks in and has a couple of lines where it's like, she's a real character in this movie. She doesn't have a huge part, but she's like, she gets some stuff to do with this small role. Like she plays the uh, the lawyer who is backing the whole operation she plays his uh, mistress and um, she's just so in like, she's a sex object, obviously just burns, burns through the screen, but then she's really scared when the cops come. And there's this really great moment where she's like, the cops are like, get out of here. We want to talk to you or whatever. And she's like, please, please. I can't go to jail. You know, she's really terrified. And then just like she, a switch flips and she turns on, the sex appeal, you know, and she's like, well, maybe why don't me and you talk for a while? Maybe you, we could talk back here for a while or whatever, you know, and she like flips that switch instantly because she's scared, you know, she's going to go to jail, you know, and like to see her just in real time, just like turn from being terrified to being like, I know how to get out of this. I'll be a sex pot. You know, I'll offer myself to this man. And it's, it's, it's a really, really good scene. And she's, uh, Houston knows what to do with her. He knows he's got a star, I think, in, in like, you know, he can, I think he can tell that, that she's going to be somebody because the way he photographs her and the way, 
um, the attention that the camera gives her is different than if it was just a random bit part, you know? Yeah, no, I, you know, I agree. And I do love that scene because it is a very noticeable switch that she has standing in the doorway. Um, what's interesting is, uh, Lola Albright was the first choice, but she was not available. Um, so it took, it took Houston a little convincing to, uh, allegedly it took him a little convincing to, to think that she was, uh, that she was right for the role. Really? Yeah. I mean, she, she definitely, uh, she definitely is capable of it. What about, what about her, what about her man? What about the, the lawyer who's financing all this? Uh, what did you think of him? Because I think he's low-key got one of the best performances in the movie. Because he just, like, he finances the whole thing, but he can't finance it because he's broke. And he fantasizes about leaving on a trip to, you know, wherever. I don't know, Mexico or something with Marilyn Monroe, his girlfriend. And, like, when he gets caught, he he's just, just like, resigned. Like, he's just, like, I don't know. His reaction to being caught is just so it's just so great because he's just like eh, you know i knew i knew i wasn't long for this world like it's really i thought his performance was really great no i i i think it is too and i think he has uh one of the saddest scenes in the whole movie is when his wife just wants to play cards with him oh i think that i think that he did a lot of switching for his character he had to at times be confident at times be kind of slimy yeah. And at times be vulnerable. And I think he did a lot of that uh, sometimes all in one scene. You know, he can go from being confident, especially the scene where he tells him he doesn't have the money. Yeah. You go from like being confident to then being like, um, I don't know, like, no, you got to, you got to like, listen, I can work it out. And then he thinks he has the upper hand, but as soon as he doesn't, it switches. It reminds me a lot of, uh, and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, one of my favorite performances from uh, Jack Lemon. Right. When he switches back and forth from being overconfident to being like a sniveling child, like uh, Lewis Calhoun, who played Emmerich, didn't take it that far, but he was very like, oh, look at me. I'm Mr. Confident because my guy's got the gun to being like, oh, shit, he's dead. Hey, uh, maybe I can still be of use to you. Right. Right. No, it's 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 a great performance, too. And like I always I think of the uh, whenever he's. Uh, whenever the cops come, you know, and tell him that his his uh, his the guy working for him has been killed, it's like a master class in building a wall of bullshit that looks like gold. You know what I mean? Like he's just hiding behind like pure class stuff. You know what I mean? Like he, he, like he's just like he's like assuming that no one will think he did anything wrong because he lives in this house and because he, he has this mistress and he, you know what I mean? Like, it's all like a cultivated, you know, like when you think of like, Oh, I just lie to the cops or whatever. Like this guy's lying to the cops, but it's more than that. Right. He's like, no, in order to convince the cops, I didn't do shit. I've got to act like a rich douchebag. Right. Like I've got to, I've got to put up that front. Otherwise, you know, they may suspect me, you know, like it's a really, Man, it's a really effectful, uh, affecting performance. I hope one day, if cops ever come up to me and tell me I'm under arrest, I can I can just respond with be like, "Well, whatever for." Like, <laughs> I just hope that would just be so awesome. Whatever for, dear sir. What what what, <laughs> what what about our boy Hayden though? What what about what about him? Because I want to mention him and 
and Gene Hagen before we go. But what about uh, what about Sterling Hayden plays an Irish uh, former Kentucky horse farmer? So, you know, I can I can relate to him a lot uh, as an Irish. Hey, a lot of this movie was shot in Kentucky. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 They shot it uh, over uh, Lexington and Keeneland and they shot some in Cincinnati. Wow. Okay, that's right in my uh, right in my backyard, basically. Yeah, and I like how it's set in some. I don't think they mention where they're located in the movie, do they? No, not that I remember. No, like they mention Chicago. I think they call it Shy, you know, but they don't they don't mention where they're at. They're just at kind of some unnamed midwestern town. You know, a Cincinnati makes a lot of sense. You know, just the these are small time crooks. You know, um, what do you think about Hayden? Because I think. I think he's better in the killing, but this is also a great performance of his. Yeah, I do think he's better in the killing, but I also think of all the movies I've seen, he was in a lot of movies. He was in a lot of movies just between 1950 and 1956 from, from this movie to the killing. Right. Uh, right. Or, or 55, whenever the killing came out. Uh, I, you know, of the movies I've seen, he's never given a bad performance. I mean, yeah. I, I thought he was great in this, you know, did it, maybe need a little more finesse and a little less tough guy. I mean, yeah, you can make the argument, but that's really a nitpick because you kind of get the sense that this guy has history. You get the, like you, you can kind of get that without really needing to go into his story a lot. You can kind of understand where he's coming from. And I think that that is because of the way Hayden played the part. Well, I think you also kind of get fooled into thinking he's the main character, you know, like, Oh, yeah. Oh, easily. Yeah. Like yeah. At, at the beginning, because you think like, boy, they're not doing a lot to flesh out this main character. And then you realize like, oh, there is no main character. You know, like there is no, um, you know, and when, 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 I, when I think about it like that, it's like, oh, well, then it, I think it's a really effective performance because it's he's just a fucking tough guy. He's just a fucking tough guy who wants to get back to Kentucky, you know. Um, and I, I want to shout out Gene Hagen. Um, we could we could talk probably talk all day about all the different characters and actors in these, this movie because they're all just so great. Uh, the, the bookie who sweats when he gets around money, you know. I mean, it's uh, the the poor guy with the kid, you know, and all that. But I want to shout out Gene Hagen. Gene Hagen um, has one of the best comic performances in I think cinema history. In Singing in the Rain, she plays Lena Lamont, um, the notorious. Uh, Lena Lamont, who gets in all kinds of shenanigans with Gene Kelly um, in Singing in the Rain. And boy, this performance could not be more different uh, than that kind of high comedy uh, that she gets into in that movie. I mean, oh, this performance was heartbreaking. It really is. It really is. I mean, it, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of some of the uh, it reminded me of uh, Constance. I can't remember her name, but in The Naked Kiss. Remember that movie, the Sam Fuller movie? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It reminded me of that. Like, it's really kind of a, uh, no pun intended, naked performance kind of, you know, she's just so pathetic. And so, um, you know, she's in love with Sterling Hayden. And there's this great moment where she's like, if you don't take me with you, I'm going to tell the cops about you or whatever. And you can see Sterling Hayden just looking at her and he's just like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get, why are you so hung up on me? I've never paid you a bit of attention. Like, why are you so hung up on me? And she gives like a really great performance as this woman who just will attach herself to men because they're the only life raft that she has, you know, she's down and out. And there's that great scene where she's like trying to be like a homemaker 
for him in that one scene. And then she's just, and he's just like, she's trying to be like tender with him. And all she can talk about is his fucking horses back in Kentucky. Like she's like trying to be like affectionate. And he's just like, I got to get back to my horses. I got to get back to old Kentucky. You know, like it's like, which makes that closing scene even more heartbreaking. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, God damn it. She's just so like the, the, the great scene where she, her false eyelash falls off, you know, and she's, she's like on the run at the beginning. I don't remember. She owes somebody money or something, but like she needs a place to stay. I think she maybe got kicked out of her apartment and like, it's just, and you look at someone like Jean Hagen and like, I know her front and back from Lena Lamont, right? Like I cannot look at her and not see Lena Lamont because singing in the rain is one of my favorite movies, but then you watch this and that completely disappears. Because she's a real actress, you know what I mean? She's not a movie star. Gene uh, Hagen isn't, I don't think. She's more of a character actress, and she just disappears into that part, and she's so pathetic and so lonely, and, like, I'm sure there's, like, a a real good liberal way to view this of, like, oh, this is a sexist depiction of, like, this woman, you know, she's just desperate for this man, blah, blah, blah. Man, there are, I know women like that, especially in low-income areas, like like there are women like that who they don't see any path out of their desperate environment other than attaching themselves to a strong man right and that's that's that shit is real man that shit is that shit is real it's as real as real can get there are women like that there are women desperate enough in their life situation to cling to fucking deadbeat men like Sterling Hayden in this movie. And Gene Hagen just brings all that to life. And same with her, same with Marilyn. She's not on screen that much. She has like what, three or four scenes, you know, like, and Oh yeah. Yeah. She, maybe she, a combined screen time of like five minutes. Yeah. And she conveys all of that, you know, she's man. What a great movie. What a, a great bunch of performances, man. I'm glad you picked this fucking movie, man. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, man. Same here. I mean, I'll tell you though, in closing, you know what really would have been a great addition to this movie? Hmm. Uh, George Raft. <laughs> don't fucking start with me. Don't start with me. We're having such a good time. I don't want to hear about George Raft. I'm just saying, man, George Raft could have fit in real nice. God, could you I'll imagine? Say. You imagine George Raft in front of Houston's just like just like still camera. Like I can't imagine George Raft like he'd just like snap and be like, what's the camera pointing to me for pointing at something else? You know, like he just didn't have the, he didn't have the, the, the chops for it, you know? Um, Oh, you there? Something broke up. Oh yeah. 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 Must have, something must have okay. broke up. Uh, I won't, I won't, uh, tolerate that, uh, that George Raft take. But whatever, I just fine. I do think yeah. he would, uh, he would be, he would be great in this. Fuck George Raft, fuck Kubrick, and you know what? While we're at it, fuck David Fincher, just for just because his name came up. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm not even gonna disagree with that. You know, whatever. Yeah, fuck Fincher. <laughs> <laughs> if you took away anything from this episode about a great movie called The Asphalt Jungle, it should be fuck David Fincher. <laughs> Um, but no, seriously, this movie was fantastic. I think, I think it deserves its reputation as being 
influential and as being as good as it is, uh, as great as it is, I should say. John Houston classic. Uh, watch it, guys. It's on Criterion. Uh, you can also rent it for like two bucks. If you haven't seen it, just sit down and watch it. It's a great watch. Great characters. I mean, just a, just a beautiful movie. So Yeah, really a lot to... It's one of those Crossroads movies where there's a lot of different threads to pull on. You know what I mean? That's one of the reasons why I think it was a great pick for an episode because there's just... You know, you could talk about film noir. You can talk about, you know, the state of screen acting in 1950. And it's a real movie in transition. There's just a lot for anybody who, you know, is just a fucking movie dork like us. Like, there's really a lot to dig into there. So a rich text, as they say. Um, Yeah. Is it dork uh, like a Wells penis or something? I would prefer you not refer to me as that, please. (laughs) <laughs> first of all that's got to be like an ur- urban legend of like that's like a fourth grade urban legend where like you know you call somebody a dork and they're like well that means whale's penis like ha ha you know there's no way that's true uh one of the earliest documented uses of the word dork is a 1961 publication in which the meaning is clearly penis but no particular reference to a whale's penis the term may be merely a minced oath variant of dick the vulgar term for the human penis. Okay, well, <laughs> we're both right. Because it does mean penis, but it doesn't mean whale's penis. Yeah, if you're just a couple of movie dicks like us. Um... <laughs> Dude, I had no idea that was the originator of dork. That's great. Um, hey, next time it comes up at a party, it's like like it up. It's like the, it's like frick. It's like the safe way of saying dick. You know what I mean? Like, without actually saying it frick sure well you know like it's like the it's like the christian cussing you know that's kind of like what it is oh yeah so fucking boring just swear already you know you're saying it in your head god can hear everything now gosh darn it i I don't i don't care if frick to curse (laughs) kentucky has turned you into this (laughs) Uh, anyway Guys, we hope you enjoyed this discussion. We genuinely enjoyed watching it and discussing it just because it's definitely one of those hidden gems. Uh, so anyway, we've got some good things in the uh, pipeline for you. And also, my co-host will be returning to his homeland, his other homeland, pretty soon. So uh, Hell like, yeah. we, like we've teased already, guys, we got some guest episodes coming up, and uh, it's going to be fun. Also, Halloween's right around the corner. I'm excited. We're doing an episode every day of October. Um so <laughs> that, I almost didn't hear that. I was like, <laughs> I almost just agreed to that. Um, yeah. It's actually just going to be a live stream the entire month of October. God, could you imagine? So, Should we do that? Just us watching movies for like 30 straight days, lose both of our jobs. No, I feel like my joking has really put things on the, off the rails here. So we're going to reel it back in. Uh, do you have anything to add before we get out of here? I don't let's wrap it up. Guys, thanks again for listening. Don't forget, rate and review wherever you listen. It uh, really is a big help. And follow us on Twitter to see what things Jacob is ranting and raving about. Yeah, review us, Uh, Dad. Blame it. Yeah, Dad Gummit, do it. Uh, Anyway, guys, thanks again. And uh, we'll see you next week here at the Silver Screen Video.